The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another exciting episode of Negotiate Anything. Negotiate Anything is produced by the American Negotiation Institute. And with over 3 million downloads and listeners in over 180 countries, listeners just like you have made it the number one negotiation podcast in the world. I'm Kwame Christian, and I'm the director of the American Negotiation Institute. We're growing, and I want to introduce you to our new team members and new trainers. This will give you new and diverse perspectives on negotiation and conflict resolution. And that's why Shane Martin, our head of sales and partnerships, is going to serve as co-host of the show from time to time. We're excited to continue to provide you with the best content that will help to make your difficult conversations easier, both at work and at home. Lastly, our team conducts negotiation and conflict resolution trainings in the United States and abroad. Our trainings will give you the practical skills you need to resolve conflict, negotiate, lead, and persuade with confidence. Click the link in the description below to learn more about how we can make your difficult conversations easier. Aaron, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So my name's Erin Upchurch. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and I am the executive director for Kaleidoscope Youth Center, which is Ohio's largest and longest standing organization to serve LGBTQI plus youth and young adults. Fantastic. Okay. Now, listeners, today we're going to have a bit of a different angle for this episode. As you know, we usually do three points, keep it really nice and tight but I, I don't want to rush this conversation because it's very important. And as you know, um, it is Pride Month. And so we want to celebrate diversity on the podcast. And also we want to give you actionable tools and techniques and strategies and mindsets that you can use for these conversations about LGBTQ challenges, issues, and where we are in society. So I'll just, Aaron, I'll just give you the floor when it comes to difficult conversations in the world that you're coming from. Tell me the role that it plays. Man, difficult conversations seem to, to come up often, um, whether it's, you know, uh, defining something, trying to explain something that people don't, aren't used to, um, specifically around gender identity, that comes up quite a bit, talking about transgender and non-binary identities. Um, you know, even when it comes to programs and things that we're doing and somebody might say, why would you do something that centers the needs of one population? You know, all youth matter, all young people need something. Um, why a center just for LGBTQ youth? What's so special? I mean, all those conversations come up and, and specifically, um, you know, there's some legislation in the state house that are, you know, wanting to determine um, who can play sports based on their gender identity. Um, there's things in the state house about what can be taught at school or what can be talked about. And there's also some things here in Ohio around med medical professionals uh, being willing to not provide care for LGBTQ people. And so all of those are difficult conversations um, by way of, of it, see, it doesn't feel difficult for me. I guess you say on this side, because to me, it's really logical and it makes sense. And we should not be um, having public conversations that um, seek to invalidate identities. 
Um, but they're difficult because the people who are against any concept or something new say some really horrible things. Okay, so let's dig deeply into mm -hmm. this, Erin, um, because when most people go into these conversations, um, they will be absolutely terrified. Yeah. <laughs> no, no matter which side of the issue, let's use issue with air quotes here, mm -hmm. they're on, they're going to be scared. And you have managed to find a way to lean into these conversations and they're not as difficult for you. So mm -hmm. before we even talk about how to have the conversations, I'd be really interested to uncover your mindset and how you were able to get to this point. Sure. Well, you know, after I answered, I was like, why aren't these difficult for me? And realizing that the work that I do, whether it's talking about the, the work that we do, the young people or myself and my own experience, I've gotten so used to talking about it. And it's something that I am so deeply connected to that it, it does roll off my tongue with ease um, because I'm living this all the time. So I wanted to be mindful that I think it was important to say out loud as well as like these conversations are typically difficult for other people. I'm in a, a situation in a, a place of privilege in my own life and in my own career and with my family. And um, I'm in my mid forties. Like there's something that I, you know, I, I've arrived here to where I don't fear losing my job or losing access to anything by being able to talk about myself or my experience, the work that I'm doing. So I want to acknowledge that um, for a lot of people talking about themselves or their identities um, as a matter of life and death. Um, and so, you know, when I think about the conversations that I get to have, I'm hoping that it's in service of somebody else's life sometimes who doesn't have the privileges or the access or the protections um, and who can be safely, I can be bold and out and safe um, enough in, in my community to make that makes that okay. I think that's just something really important to think about when we're having identity-based conversations. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So it sounds like a big part of it is almost like mu muscle memory mm. because you've been having these conversations and you've leaned into them so much that you've essentially, I don't want to say desensitized in a cold callous type of way, but desensitized in a way that it doesn't hold you back, right? You can still yeah. lean in. Yeah. But I think the other part that's fair for me to um, share is I'm a social worker. I've been practicing for I'm in my 21st year. Um, and so uh, I've done a little bit of everything in like community mental health. I am a therapist. Um, and uh, so I think there's some skill that, you know, I don't want to act like doesn't exist here as well. Um, being a social worker and understanding how to talk to people in communities and human behavior and, and all that. And not to say that I'm like uh, using that, you know, I'm using my powers for good, for sure. But yeah, I think there is a level of desensitization that happens. Um, which is why it's so important for me, I think, in, in doing this and talking about the work and connecting with others is to remember the importance of that connection. Um, I don't wanna ever be so far away from the, the mission or the issue that I don't feel. Like I want, I want to feel things. I want to, um, I'm a big old teddy bear inside. I want to be tenderhearted. I want to have to choke back tears sometimes. Um, I want to be angry. I, I want all of that to happen because I want to be present and I want to feel and acknowledge my aliveness and the, the life of the people um, with whom I'm talking. 
I think that's great, Aaron. And so there's a skill set that you have that makes you particularly adept at having these conversations. And I will also say a mindset as well, because there was something that you said that I'm not sure a lot of people would have really caught on to, but it's simple word choice that signals how you're seeing the conversation. Because a lot of times people say, I have to have these conversations. And what you said was, I get to have these conversations. Yes. That is a critical mindset because as we talk about on the podcast all the time, conflict is an opportunity. There's, mm-hmm. There are good things on the other side of these difficult conversations. And what you're able to do is you're recognizing that even though these conversations are difficult in that we're touching on very sensitive issues, when it's all said and done, you are in the position to have an impact, a meaningful impact on the lives of others. Absolutely. And, and I, I love that you picked up on that, um, you know, saying that I get to, and I think it's also, it's my why, you know, it's my moral imperative. Like why, why am I here? Why am I having conversations? What makes this so important? And, you know, you just be, this is who I am, not just in my role as executive director, but just in my day-to-day life. Um, I'm being, you know, having this non-negotiable stand um, around the dignity of other people and other communities and really committed to disrupting harm or reducing harm. And that's in my day-to-day life. And I will say, you know, having a set of values and ethics around which to orient work or orient who I am or the time, the ways I spend my time is really, really necessary and important um, because it gives me something to connect to and be resourced with and having these conversations. So I do get to have them and I also get to walk away at some point. And so it's, it's not having an agenda. I mean, there is an overarching agenda around safety and building spaces of belonging and community. But I also am very, very clearly aware that um, I'm just one part in the process, right? So sometimes, and I, I use this, you know, I grew up in the church. And so, you know, having this plant, one comes to plant the seed, other is to water, and there's those who get to harvest. And I'm really clear um, that I often am pre-seed, I am the disruptor that gets to dig up all the roots. Um, and then somebody can come. So I'm, I'm preparing the field, you know, and I'm preparing the space for the rest of those conversations to happen and understanding that I may, and this is where my social work experience I think comes in is I don't always get to see the end result of these conversations or of the work that's happening, but like I get to be there in that moment and trusting that the rest of it will unfold as it needs to. Aaron, one of the things that you mentioned earlier was that your background as a, as a social worker and your background doing therapy helps you in these conversations. And so you have a, a defined skill set that helps. And so based in your experience, having these conversations, both with individuals within the LGBTQ community and as an advocate for their, their safety and their rights, what are the skills that have been most beneficial for you? The two... I think the, the, the strongest ones, which may be surprising, is the ability is listening, being a good listener, and um, comfortable with silence and the pause. Um, you know, when, when people, there's empathic listening and, you know, people, when they think about therapists, they like the, the nodding and that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but like truly listening for not just what's said, but what's not being said. Um, listening to tone, paying attention to body language when possible, um, inflections and and then also just being comfortable with 
after somebody says something, sometimes just pausing and holding the space, especially if they're saying something that's heavy or serious or meaningful or difficult, is just holding that space. That also gives me the opportunity to breathe and find my own rest within myself. So I'm not coming from a place, especially if I'm charged, right? And I don't want to react, I want to respond. And so those are actually, I would say for me, the best uh, skills or tools that I've um, learned, developed, have been able to, to utilize. Um, sometimes, you know, it's asking questions, being curious. Curiosity is so important. Um, even if I think I know about the thing or I understand what they're gonna say, I'm still curious. And not in a way that's like exploiting and digging in just for the sake of digging in, um, but I just want to know and I want to understand. Um, and then really just paying attention and, and feeling in to the space and the other person. And, you know, we can feel people when they're anxious. We can feel when they're uncomfortable or angry. Um, and so that patience and being willing to slow down, we are so fast moving in our culture and things are so transactional and, and we're about convenience. And there's a lot to be said for connecting and taking the time to connect with people. And it could be, it doesn't have to have to take an hour to connect. It could be that initial looking someone in the eyes and saying hello and asking not just about their day, but like, what do you have going on? And, and just spending time for that. Um, and I will say one other thing that I have learned, not just as a social worker, but through other healing modalities and practices is um, holding my own dignity and that of the other person at the center of the conversation is extremely important. And what that looks like, um, I use, I'm a parent, I have two children. Um, I have a 17 year old daughter, a 19 year old son. Um, when you wanna talk about personal growth, yes, especially that 19 year old. And when I have to hold it, when I get to hold his dignity at the center, if there's a disagreement, that means I'm gonna listen more than I'm talking it might mean that I don't raise my voice, that I'm less uh, likely to get very sharp and abrasive in my answers because I'm a human and as parents and just people in the world, we get charged in conversation. So there's plenty of times I've had conversations with him that were charged and I've had to go back and say, I didn't hold your dignity here. I meant, I meant what I said, not how I said it and how it came across. And I think, you know, approaching situations like that, whether we agree with somebody or not, and holding my dignity. So who do I want to be? What are my values? How can I feel into those? But the other person as well are really important. Aaron, again, brilliantly tying in skill set and mindset. Because like you said, we have to become better listeners. Hi, I'm Catherine Kanapke, and I'm the Chief Operating Officer here at the American Negotiation Institute. Did you know our company offers completely customizable negotiation workshops? The negotiation and conflict resolution skills that your team will learn from these workshops are beneficial across all professions, but they're especially useful in procurement, purchasing, sales, sourcing, and contract management. Our calendar is filling up quickly, and we even have some workshops scheduled for next year. If you think you might want one, I'd suggest reaching out soon so you don't miss out. Check out the link in the description to learn more. Also, be sure to check out our YouTube, LinkedIn, and Instagram accounts to see our daily negotiation content. Thanks for listening. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. 
So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives, like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. For some people, listening is more difficult than it is for other people. And one of the things that you said was that you are genuinely curious. That's the mindset. So the reason you are able to listen effectively is because you genuinely care about the person and you genuinely want to know what that person has to say. And I think it goes back to what you said, where you say we're centering on the dignity, not only of the other person, but also of yourself. And I really want to home in on that because a few other people in the podcast um, who have been guests in the past who have, have talked about listening. And so we have a lot of good information on effective listening. And I love what you said about the mindset. But let's talk about that's centering the dignity of both parties. When you say that, what does that mean? And then what does it do? You said something like, I you know, generally want to hear people have to say. I don't always want to hear what people have to say. And I think, you know, full disclosure, sometimes I'm not interested in, in what they have to say, especially if it's hard to hear or I just think it's nonsense. Um, and so holding their dignity allows me to still see their, their humanness and their life under the nonsense so that I can listen differently. Um, and what that means is, you know, when I think about the inherent dignity of all people, like my own dignity is, is being really clear regarding the truth about who I am and my values and my ethics and like what's important to me and how I wanna walk away from situations. And what I know is that none of us have to earn our dignity or our worth. Like we're born with our, our, our truth and our worth. And, and I think, you know, if we, we get to talk more about coming out, we can circle around that as well. But it's, it's just because I don't agree with someone or perhaps I don't enjoy them and their presence, their life is still sacred and it still means something. And my relationship to, to them in that way doesn't impact the validity of who they are and what they have to say. So we, we can't say that people matter or their voice matters or we want to hear from everybody if it's not truly, we don't get to pick and choose. We shouldn't be, I should say. That's, and that's hard. It's hard to find a place, you know, to unify with people, even if it's just one thing, without sanitizing our own experiences, mine or theirs. 
you know, I should be able to be able to talk to you and maybe you have an experience I don't understand or agree with, or I'm just not, it's uncomfortable to hear, but you get to show up with all of that. And so me trying to sanitize and erase is not holding your dignity in there. That's trying to make you palatable for me to be able to, to take it. And so there's a lot of it. It's an inside job, right? Like it's at the end of the day, it's I'm the, I actually have to do the work to have the space and expansion on the inside and the capacity and doing things so that I get to show up that way. Okay. Oh, now we're going to have some fun, Aaron. I'm going to try to make you feel uncomfortable. Just, just kidding. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, yeah, you can. <laughs> so, but you know what? Discomfort. So I do um, facilitation and trainings around equity and, and DE&I stuff and transformative justice. And when we can get the group to be uncomfortable, that's when I celebrate. And they don't like it, but I love it because here we are. We finally arrived. We're both here and we're present or we're all here and present. So yes, I love that. Good. Oh, this is great then. So, so let's keep it real with this because sure. this is, I think with a lot of the, um, the difficult conversations we talk about on this show, if we're talking about business negotiation, for example, I tell you when you're, when it's a, like a big deal, like money's on the line, that is so much easier than dealing with the the dignity of human beings yeah. right when we're talking about the the difficult conversations that we're having about race justice lgbtq rights all of those things mm-hmm. i would much rather have millions <laughs> on the line <laughs> because it's so much easier yeah. so when you're in the situation when you're acting as an advocate sometimes you are going to have to have conversations with people who believe and espouse things that you find not just less palatable, but morally abhorrent. And so how do you manage to maintain (laughs) your dignity and center on their dignity as they are espousing essentially hate speech from time to time? Yeah, that's, it's hard. Um, (laughs) You know, One thing I have to do back to the inside job is I have to watch my face. Um, You know, my partner will be like, fix your face. Cause I will look at people like, what? That's ridiculous, right? And so it's being mindful even of those (laughs) those, uh, non-verbals, but it's, it's, it's having a curiosity, like how do you actually believe that? Like, tell me more or, how did you, how did we get here? How did you get here? And, and being able to ask those questions. And sometimes I just listen. It's amazing what happens when you listen and don't talk when people are saying things that are um, r- ridiculous, for lack of a better word. You just let them go. They'll stop themselves. Either that's because they hear themselves and they're like, oh, I should stop. Or they're not connected to anybody else in the room anyway, and they're not interested. So that's emotional labor and work that I don't have to contribute. And so, you know, sometimes that listening is just a, a self-soothing and it's a place of preservation, but I don't have to counteract or counter um, point everything somebody's saying that I don't agree with. It's, it's, it's picking, picking the moment. And, and I, that's important too, because there's a cost always, there's a cost to speaking up. There's a cost to being quiet. And, you know, when I make the, the choice to listen and to, you know, I've got to be mindful of that. And what am I taking in? And what does it mean for me to, um, as somebody who is fairly outspoken, what does it mean for me to not use my voice in that way? And sometimes it's just, um, and it's doing the work before and afterwards so that I can care for myself and be in a place to hold all of that. Okay. And so I'm, I'm glad that we're recording this because I can't keep up with my notes. 
this is great. And so I like the, the metaphor you used as a cost for mm-hmm. everything that you say, there's a cost for everything that you don't say, there's a cost. So essentially what is happening is during the conversation, you're doing these split second cost benefit analyses to mm-hmm. see whether or not it is worth responding. Because one of the things that you said it, that's really important and takes so much discipline that a lot of people miss is the mm-hmm. fact that I don't need to counter every point that is made that is inaccurate because then you're ceding responsibility, uh, you're ceding control of the conversation to somebody else. You're being completely reactive. And Mm -hmm. so you're learning to pick and choose your points. And it sounds like the way that you're able to do that is first by doing the inner work with yourself to recognize what are the things that make you more emotionally reactive. So you Mm -hmm. can learn to to distinguish between um, a thought and an emotional response. And then at the same time, you do your homework to recognize what is it exactly that I need to do or say in order to accomplish my very specific goal? Because maybe one problematic belief or something that somebody says out of the 10, you can let go (laughs) because it takes you too far off track. And then you can focus on what's more important because you've done that pre-work. Indeed. And, you know, there's a level of detachment or dissociation, whatever you want to call it, that can occur. Um, and you know, this is, I'm, I'm thinking of, I, a group that I, I work with and, um, it's not necessarily a difficult conversation because of the belief system, but it's them doing something differently than I would do it. And, um, like their way is not wrong. I might think my way is more right, but that doesn't mean their way is wrong, but like, it's not my place to be in the lead or to be that person. And that, so there's this healthy type of like, I'm here, I'm present, I'm going to listen, but I'm listening to see how I get to partner, not how I get to do something different, how I get to challenge. I'm not listening to to say like, no, I wouldn't do it that way. I'm actually listening to find my role in what that is and how I need to show up. So there's intention around the listening, intention around how things are being processed. Um, otherwise, it would just, it wouldn't be productive and it would, it would be harmful ultimately. Um, and it's taken a lot of work to get here. You know, this isn't a skill that I've always had, you know, in my, in my 20s in particular, definitely I'm a little hothead, right? Like I say what I need to say and move on and not, and not be mindful of what that could be creating. And, you know, now I'm, um, I think being committed to repair. So there's like this balance of like, I will say the truth if it's necessary. And I believe in being kind. I think those are, um, I think that came out of the four agreements somehow, but the author of that may have said that, but I forget, I might be misquoting the person, but sitting and thinking like, does this need to be said and does need to be said by me? Like there's like questions, but there's something inside of me when I have to speak, I know that I have to speak. And it's like my ears get warm and I just feel it. And it's, it's something that I've just been attuned to probably the last 10 years of like, cause I'm at a lot of tables and meetings and coalitions. And sometimes um, I don't want to say a thing or engage in anything that's difficult because I know the thing I'm gonna say is gonna shift the conversation and it's gonna be uncomfortable. And sometimes I just don't feel like it. But I also know when my ears get warm and there's something in me, like I, I have, I get to speak here. Like I'm compelled to do so. And so I think being mindful of that too is something that I've had to learn. And I don't always get it quote unquote right you know, but I'm very committed to repair. I'm very committed to understanding. Um, and I'm also committed to just walking away from something. If it's, if it's not going to work, it's not going to work. 
you know, and being okay with that too. If we can't find a space to be in the middle, like that can also be okay. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Now let's shift the conversation to the difficult conversations about coming out. Sure. And now you and your organization, you have more experience with this. And so as I'm setting the stage from my perspective, and I want you to correct me because I'm probably wrong here, I'm, I'm thinking about it from two angles and I might be creating a false dichotomy. So I'm thinking about the difficult conversation from the person, the perspective of the person who is coming out, mm -hmm. and then the difficult conversation from the perspective of the person who might be listening to the conversation, right? Are there any other players or angles we should consider in the analysis? Perhaps, you know, the, if it's around family, the, the cumulative impact of that on both sides, um, how many times a person has to come out as something to, to consider. Um, probably, I would say more, the, the impact is more cumulative at times for the person who has to continually come out. So maybe not just to family and friends and people within their inner circle, but then when they're going to work or school or in the community, filling out benefits, you know, sitting at a table somewhere in the public doing something like there's multiple times that people in the community have to come out. And I think that's where the, the, the drain and the exhaustion sometimes can be. And, and because I, I do have the benefit of, of being in multiple roles, and I say this with a, a bit of caution, is like the people receiving it, it, the challenge is there, but we don't want to center that necessarily. However, we know relationships matter and there's connection. And so there's a lot of young people, like here's an, I'll talk about myself, you know, I never like formally came out to my, my parents. Um, I think like 15 years ago, I just was living my life, but there was this moment where, you know, they asked me a question because of my roommate and I had to say, yes, this is actually my partner. And there have been times where I probably could have distanced myself significantly from my own family um, because of religion and faith beliefs. Um, but I don't want to because it's my family and they're my parents. And I'm at this point committed to be a relationship with them because I know they won't always be around. So that's a choice and that's a cost that I've been able to make and I get to determine like what that looks like. Um, but like, I've, I want those relationships. And so some, those are decisions that we get to make sometimes and they're not always easy, especially if you're 12 or 13, right? And your, your survival is based on those connections, those relationships. So I think, yes, it can be as simple as like this part, you know, these two entities and it's so nuanced and it's so complicated. Um, as we dig in a little bit deeper. Yeah, you, as you could probably see by my face, I was a little bit, my mind was a little bit blown <laughs> with one of the things that you mentioned was how many times you have to come out. Because I, I think a, a lot of times in the, in the media and when you hear these stories, it's like, okay, I came out and then everything was good. <laughs> Right. Nope, that's not usually how it works. <laughs> no, not at all. It's, an, uh, it's a gross oversimplification. Mm -hmm. And then recognizing that it's almost like, depending on how people respond, it's almost like reliving trauma every single time. Mm -hmm. um, that, that needs to be a major consideration. And so let's say, hypothetically, there's somebody here in the audience who is struggling with that decision. What advice would you give? Oh, man. It's layered and I would say it's tiered. Um, at the, 
I think I first want to acknowledge being able to, you know, live as your truest and most beautiful self, radiant self is, is, um, it's a phenomenal experience. It's something that we all should get to do. And so in terms of coming out and affirming ourselves and being and sharing with other people so we can be seen, it is a human need and it's necessary. And so I just want to validate that. Um, and it, we deserve to be celebrated. And, and I want to validate that as well. Um, but I think there's different tiers around uh, safety, a sense of safety and survival. And so, you know, I'm in a place to where my visibility as a queer Black woman matters in the world. It matters for younger people. And like I mentioned before, I have a life to where it's a little safer for me to be out. And so I get to do that. And so I would say for people who have that kind of experience, whether it's from social and political capital, you know, your career, resources, all those things, if you have that, um, to take that risk, because it's still a risk and a cost, but like people, we need that. We need that kind of representation that matters. You know, I think there's other tiers where it's um, someone just trying to figure things out and um, put the world together. And that's usually older adolescents and 20 year olds, you know, we're just exploring our whole lives and um, being out and able to have open conversations is a really beautiful experience and it can be. And when you're still dependent upon other people to care for you, that's something to think about. Um, and if it's not around caring for you, around your safety. And we know, especially for Black folks and, and folks of color, that um, sometimes it's less safe to be out in our communities for multiple reasons. Um, but I think that's something to witness. And if you can at least be out to yourself, be clear about the truth about who you are within yourself and, and celebrating that, that's always a really good place to start. But I would never encourage somebody to be out at the detriment of their safety. Like I just, I don't, no, absolutely not. Um, and again, because it's so complex, like it can be a really beautiful thing to be out and to see how relationships can evolve. So maybe the initial conversation um, doesn't feel as great as we wanted it to, but like humans are so fascinating. And sometimes people do expand and they need a little bit of time to figure it out. And like, that's a really dynamic relationship that we get to have with people. And so I think Weighing the costs, um, especially for young people um, who are, you know, sometimes more likely to just be bold and be out. Um, like we support that absolutely. But if we were to sit down, then we might be like, let's talk about who are your safe people first. And what do you think is going to happen? And, and then helping them be able to plan for what could or couldn't happen based on who they're talking to, how to navigate that. There's basically no right way to be out. Um, and there's times even for myself that I'm, I mean, I'm out and I, I, this is my work, but there's also times I don't talk about my, my personal life in that way. If somebody asks me, I may answer, but I'm not leading with that depending on the, the company, um, that I'm around the people and the, the environment. This makes a lot of sense. And I think the, the reality of the fact that this can be unsafe physically and emotionally um, is really important and a strategic consideration that many of us have the privilege of not having to consider in our difficult conversations. And so it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, as you're, as the, as the person who's planning on coming out, mm -hmm. as they're gearing up to do that, 
it seems as though there's a strategic consideration of safety. Number one, how to do it safely. And then perhaps at the same time, how to create some structures or safe points to make it safer than it already is as you make that step. Am I understanding that right? Sure. Yeah, I think, yeah, sometimes. Um, and, you know, in Ohio, it's still legal to be fired, denied housing, or um, be kicked out of a public accommodation based on sexual orientation or gender identity, real or perceived. So, like, if we can look at this bigger picture, like, from a macro level for a moment, like, it's it actually is someone's livelihood and, like, housing, the basic human right. Um, and so, like, let's say I'm going to a new job and I'm filling out a benefits form and I want my partner to be covered. Once I start putting that information on there, I'm outing myself whether I really want to or not. And so it's like those kinds of nuances that I don't know that always get considered when people are moving through the world. That's when we say like coming out multiple times, I'm going to a doctor. We don't always know our doctor's philosophies and beliefs. And then when they're asking questions about your history and all that, there's usually moments based on the questions that we are outing ourselves to let them know. And so those are things you can't always plan for um, per se or somebody's reaction. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's just really being mindful. And I, the reason I'm hesitating is because I don't want anyone to hear like, don't come out or don't be yourself. Like, I don't want that to be heard at all. I wish for a world where everybody gets, like where no one has to ask for permission to exist. That's the world I want to see. Um, and I want our youth to stay alive and stay healthy and stay well and not be harmed. And so, you know, as a, a mama bear almost in this, like, don't do it if it's not safe. But I also know that there's so much freedom and being your true self and your firm self, and then finding people or places like Kaleidoscope that are going to support with the resources um, is a really important thing to do. That makes a lot of sense. And and I know you said earlier, we want to center on the, the people mm -hmm. who are going through the, the coming out process, but I would be remiss if mm -hmm. for the sake of my audience, for people who want to be allies and want to be supportive, if I didn't at least address a little bit mm -hmm. what they can do to be a bit more supportive. And so what would you say are the best practices for people as they play yeah. that supporting role? Being honored and appreciative that somebody's telling you you know, and so it could be like, thank you for telling me if it's an intentional coming out. Um, if it's not an intentional, like I need you to know this, but it's just through happenstance or because of paperwork, like don't make it a thing, right? So follow the other person's lead. Um, that is not the time to center your own emotions. Like this is, especially it's like a parent or caregiver. That's who I'm talking to right now. That is not the time to be like, oh my God, this is so devastating. All these things, all those initial reactions that are real. It's so real. But what our young people, what our youth need to know is that they are loved and that they belong and they absolutely need it in that moment. So if your young person is coming out to you, even if you don't understand it all, an ideal situation is thank you for trusting me to tell me. I'm so happy for you. How can I be supportive? How can I support you? I love you. You belong here. And just really affirming them because the world isn't always going to do that. And so that's that's what I would say to parents and caregivers and you know, and then anybody else, if a young person um, or a family friend or whomever, like I said, like that's an honor. 
And then if you want to be curious about question, you know, about what's going on or labels, you can ask questions like, oh, okay, um, is there a different name you'd like me to use? Or if they're talking about their pronouns, how would you like me to talk about you? What pronouns would you like me to use? And, and really making sure you're centering that person's experience. Um, and if you want to ask questions to learn more, asking them if they have the space for that. That's a really important piece to not be deep diving in to give me all the history about what this means. It could just be like, I have some questions. Do you have space for this? Or would you like to do it at another time? Because that's also going to be overwhelming. And sometimes like we don't want to have to teach people how to care about us. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think especially following people's lead too. Yes. Um, what would you say are some of the biggest mistakes that people make when trying to be supportive when they are well-meaning? So let's say they are, <laughs> they're trying to be that, <laughs> that uber ally. Um, what, are, what are some misses that you've seen happen? I mean, I think the initial one of like, what, why, what happened? What's wrong with you? Like anything that's just a negative, did something's wrong here? Like that's, don't do that. Um, the biggest one is when people center themselves. And so if someone's coming out, um, not making it about you and how you feel or the impact at that moment um, or a story about somebody else. We do those things because we're uncomfortable, right? So bringing it back to difficult conversations, we have to self-soothe. And so if, if a person's coming out to us and it matters, we don't agree with it or, or whatever it is, our likelihood is to deflect and talk about something different or um, not even acknowledge that person. So I would say like anytime you, you think about people you love and care about, how you show that with them, no matter what they're sharing, it's really the same rules. See, like I got asked, I was in a panel last week about like being a good ally. And I said, actually, let's think about how are you as a human? Do you function? Are you kind to people? Are you compassionate? Are you curious? Do you listen? That's actually just being a good person. Um, and so you can employ that even with LGBTQ folks, right? Or black folks or people of color, anybody who's different, you can employ those same skills in that same place of humanity and going back to holding that person's dignity. If I respond a certain way, am I holding my own dignity in theirs? And so being okay with pausing. And even if you don't know what to say, it's okay to say, I, I don't really know how to respond. I'm just so glad you trusted me to tell me this. Thank you. It could end right there. Is there anything you need from me? How can I support you? Back to that curiosity and asking questions in that way. Erin, what I love about this is how simple you've made it. Um, because we we often overthink these things. Yes. And then we have um, paralysis by analysis and we just don't take action. And then people say, does, does this person even care? They're not doing anything <laughs> to, to help me or be supportive. But really all it is is, thank you. How can I be supportive? And, mm -hmm. and that's really, it seems like that's it. And one of you tell me what you think about this, um, because I think about some people who are very well-meaning who would say something like, "I don't see race," for example, as um, uh, I, I see her. <laughs> um, and uh, and I know how, even though I can tell people mean well, it's like I don't need a pass on on being black. I, you can see me as a black person and everything can still yeah. be okay. And I, I think here, when it comes to um, to people coming out, a mistake that people could make is saying, oh, I don't like, I don't see your sexuality. I don't see you as, as a, a queer person. I just see you as you. Mm -hmm. And 
tell me how that could potentially be received um, for somebody in the LGBTQ community. <laughs> um, when someone says that, I, again, like, as you said, like understand the sentiment at times, um, but I'm gonna need you to see me. I need you to see me. I need you to hear me. I need you to understand my life. And I need you to know what's important to me. I need you to know how much I love my partner. Like I need you to know those things if you want to know me. Um, and it's the same thing I would say to someone who says, I don't see you as black. Well, I need you to, because I am. And that's the lens through which I navigate the world. And those are my experiences. And so um, being unwilling to see somebody for who they are um, and, and what they bring is again, a way to make ourselves more comfortable. And it's, um, it actually, like, I don't appreciate it. I, I'm at a point in my life where I actually don't, I need them to work a little bit harder. Um, well, what would happen if you, it may be the question is, well, what would happen if you did see me in this way? What, what does that change for you? And I, I you know, that's so important. And I, this is an oversimplification and I'll acknowledge that, but just like we each have our own names, right? And if I just call you any name or if I'm like, I, I don't need to know your name. I, I just see you as a person. How do we react to that? I want, I like my name, call me by my name. You know, when we talk about using pronouns, um, one of my coworkers did this uh, in a training a couple of years ago and it was brilliant, but somebody's like, why do pronouns matter? And what she chose to do was to misgender this person intentionally um, for a little bit for them. And it was, it was a man who used he, him pronouns to realize he didn't want she, her pronouns for him, himself. And so showing that example of like, well, see, this is why they matter because it's who you are. And it's the essence of who you are and, and your, how your heart beats. And why don't we should want to see that in people? We should want to celebrate it. Even if it's uncomfortable, I don't understand it. I don't have to understand you for you to be valid or you to exist or your dignity and worth to be lifted up. I don't have to understand you for that. And so erasing somebody's core of who they are, something that's important to them is a disservice. And um, some might say a form of violence. And I pause before using that because I know it, it sounds very serious, but for, especially for young people, when we don't see them and we erase a part of them, it's actually doing harm and damage to their sense of belonging in this world. Absolutely. I, I remember I was talking to one of my friends and um, he says, oh, yeah, I'm colorblind. I don't I don't see race. And I said, um, you have you have two daughters, right? He's like, yeah, I have two daughters. I was like, I don't see your daughters. There you go. <laughs> and he was taken aback. He's like, I get it now. Yeah. <laughs> OK, I get it now. Right. No, and I think it's it's something that's so important. It's it's easy to make that that well-meaning mistake. But then the more you understand it, the more you can recognize that it, it can be it could do more harm than good. And and you touched on something that I think is very important and very difficult for people to understand, which is the use of the proper pronouns. Mm -hmm. That's something that's growing in popularity, rightfully so. And to the point of the, the gentleman you described in the uh, uh, your example, a lot of people still, still don't get it. So. Right let's let's spend a little bit of time talking about that sure yeah you know pronouns is, is how we talk about our, each other or ourselves or other people when they're not around we're not using their names like to put it simply um i i you know at one point in our society and it still is used it's also to categorize male and female to put people in a binary you know we're our brains 
are huge and big and beautiful and we're so simple sometimes we, we still need our boxes we need to put that's how we make meaning about things and how we organize and so you know pronouns using them is actually communicating we don't know someone's identity gender identity just by what they look like and honestly not even by the pronouns that they use and so by somebody being able to self-identify not let others define them they get to say like, this is how I feel and see myself. My pronouns are she, her. I am a woman. I, I am cisgender. I identify with the sex with which I was assigned at birth. And it's okay to use she, her with me. But other people may not feel the same way and could be presenting exactly like I do, have similar body parts and may use a different pronoun. And that's okay too. So it's allowing folks to identify, um, self-identify, uh, for, for trans folks in particular, using pronouns, even if we're not trans non-binary, is a signal of um, understanding and affirmation of like, we get it. We want to know who you are. It's okay here for you to be yourself and inviting them to also identify who they are. So it's, I, I know I'm, ta- I'm trying to like not be too simple about it because I know people are like, what's the big deal? And it is a really big deal, especially if, one does not identify with the sex that they were assigned at birth and that gender identity. And then we all express ourselves differently. And there's many times I've been in a room full of women, full of women who use she, her pronouns, and we're all expressing our gender extremely differently. And so that's why another reason why it's important to not just blanket statement, hi ladies, hi girls, you know, and and not gendering everything. There's so many more options in terms of grouping people and how we talk to them. So let's let's explore this more mm-hmm. because I'm on board. I want to make that very, very clear. <laughs> okay. Sure. Now for a lot of people, they are still they're they're young in their journey. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. And um, they're still developing. And so there's still a lot of resistance around the the proper use of pronouns. And so let's say you you're an ally, you're an advocate, and you are having a conversation with somebody at work, a family member, those type of things, who say something like, just know this isn't me. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's fair. Okay. <laughs> who who say something like, Listen, this there we have um, people who want to just pick randomly what they want to be called, but the truth is the truth. If you are genetically, biologically a woman, then you're a woman. If you're a man, then you're a man. Where where does this end? Then people could be identifying as as other objects if that are, is that if that's not their biological assignment. I'm trying really hard here, Aaron, to to, to bring all of the worst arguments I've heard and put them in one place. And so, if you're in that conversation, how would you proceed? Well, depending on the person and place and the environment, you know, my initial thought is like, let's say that's true. Why do you care? How's it impacting your life? That's one answer. That's usually the space I'm in when I don't have actually the emotional capacity to deep dive into it. Um, And so really, why do you, okay. And people don't identify as dinosaurs and, and like, that's not a real thing. 
You know, and it's also like saying, I love people when they're purple or orange. Like there's no purple people that exist. Like pulling things out of the sky that are just not real as an example, like that actually does not support one's case. So that's one way to respond to that. And also, um, what harm is it to honor somebody and respect who they are, who they tell you they are, how they want you to refer to them? What, why not do that? For, for transgender folks and non-binary folks, especially young people, it is actually a form of suicide prevention. It is a, a form of life and death. When our young folks don't get to be affirmed, and I don't think this is just for young people, that's just who I work with, aren't affirmed, that's telling them that they have no value, that they're not worthy, that they don't exist, that they don't see themselves. That's the life and death piece. So what, what harm is it to do that? And, you know, I'll, I'll use an example. I was at a meeting almost three years ago, and it was around, it was on race, talking about Black folks and inclusion. And the response that someone gave to me, because I was talking about representation, was, we don't have this here. We don't have this. How far do we want to go? How much, like, what more can you ask for? And why is it too much to expand spaces for people to exist? That's actually my question back is, I don't know how far it's going to go as far as it needs to for people to feel affirmed and belong. It's not harming me. And I would love people to approach it from a different perspective of I'm not harming them. I don't want to harm other people. But if I need to be self-centered, I can say it's not harming me. But the reality is it's a choice to affirm people and let them know that they belong here. And that's, that's more the proactive um, placing people at promise, placing you know protective factors, all these things. That's the reason to do it. I appreciate that. And I, I appreciate you um, being so, so <laughs> respectful in a response to a question that is is so out there. And I think a lot of times, again, it goes back to the fact that people are unable, not not even they, a lot of people are unwilling, but also you can you can never fully empathize with somebody else's experience if you've not lived that. You can come close, intellectually you can, but you can't fully empathize with it. And so even the fact that somebody were uh, somebody is willing to ask a question like that demonstrates their inability to empathize with that very real reality. And your response was in was very well done, as of course you know, because you have a lot of experience dealing with this, is that the typical response is to, if you are an ally or an advocate, is to get emotional mm -hmm. and reflexively and emotionally clap back at that person um, with a statistic or a fact or an emotional response. And then it becomes an unproductive back and forth of conversational tennis where you're not really moving forward. It's just point counterpoint in perpetuity. But instead of getting reactive, again, it goes back to what you said at the beginning. You want to make sure you're responding versus reacting. And so instead of getting on the defensive, responding with another question that helps them to explore themselves. Because really, when you think about it, the reality is it's complicated. It can be complex, but in reality, it's very, it's really quite simple. Mm -hmm. This is how you see yourself. This is, they get to choose, right? I mean, how yeah. they are, how somebody refers to them. It's, it's very simple. Like that's, that's it. Yeah. And then the, what's really fascinating though, is why people are so resistant that's more interesting and people haven't fully explored that for themselves. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's actually, you know, interesting to me. It's like, huh, interesting that you say that. I'm wondering 
what got you there? It really depends on my mood. You know, I um, tend to lean towards sarcasm at times as well and humor um, <laughs> in situations which can really diffuse a situation. And I think it needs to be done responsibly, responsibly. Um, because of my position in the, the community as a leader, I do have to be mindful of those kind of things. But I also will say like, I am extremely protective of our young people and extremely protective of, uh, you know, trans people and non-binary people. And I also will not entertain a, no -nons a nonsense conversation. And so sometimes me saying like, I'm not sure what the harm is. That's my way of like, we're also not going to deep dive into this. I will not entertain this, you know, because for me, it's whether those folks are in my presence or not, I'm always going to be a non-negotiable stand for their life. Um, you know, I, I operate in this not on my watch because people I love are members of this community. And so just like, you're not going to talk about my, my uh, blood sister, you're not going to talk about my siblings in the community. That's not going to happen. And so it, it really depends on the situation and who it is and how egregious it is. Um, to where, where I engage. If somebody's genuine and asking a question, I am more than happy to engage with them and talk about it. But if somebody's being flippant and disrespectful and harmful, I'm less likely to, first of all, that's the, the emotional labor I don't need to get into. They don't wanna change. They don't care about the statistics and they essentially don't care about the lives of the people, those folks. And so I get to stand for my people and I don't have to engage in this nonsense. Um, because they get to stay there. That's their choice. Absolutely. And it goes again, circling back to what you said at the beginning, when you're reading people's body language, you can start to get a sense of whether or not somebody is genuine in the way that they're approaching it. Yeah. Um, and if, if you recognize this person could be salvaged, <laughs> as a potential right, ally, right. <laughs> then we'll do that. But I'm not just going to sit here and spin my wheels in perpetuity um, because that doesn't serve me or the community. And I think we can be, you know, there's a place of compassion, which I know some might argue against this, um, like they don't deserve compassion for coming that way. Uh, but what I know is I can say something like, it's unfortunate that you feel that way, you know, and I can, it is unfortunate. And I can also respond with that and be done with it. But I also know, especially when it comes to gender identity and gender expression, it invites people to, to really like question themselves all they thought they knew about themselves, their relationships, their faith, their religion. Like it's actually pretty deep for people to have to work through that because if they have to accept in their mind that um, one's gender identity may not be aligned with what I'm seeing in front of me, first of all, like where are the boxes? Cause that's how we function in a binary way and a lot of things right or left, you know, black or white. Like that's how we function as humans. And so, that's just blowing our minds on a very surface level. But then when you get into faith and religion and what you were taught about men and women and relationships and all of that, it, it's a lot. And I'm not, that is absolutely not a reason to be egregious in our responses or to treat people poorly or do the whole like, how do I keep track? Like all of that, like that is not an excuse or a reason. And I do understand that there's more going on in there. Um, and I have the privilege of that because my life and, and death and safety are not hinged upon that. So I get to stand up and be in a different position, but that's why I want to be in this wrong position is because I don't want our young folks or anybody who's more vulnerable to have to have those conversations. Absolutely. And let's, let's end with this interesting blend between or intersection, we should say between strategy and philosophy. 
Yeah. Um, because I'm I'm starting to do more work in DEI and um, especially talking about difficult conversations about race. Mm-hmm. And um, some people would say if we're trying to be allies and advocates and everything, we don't really have time to focus at all on the on the feelings of people who are getting in the way of progress. And one of the things that you talked about was the value of compassion in these conversations. And so I want to get your perspective on when it comes to these difficult conversations, let's just say in general, if you're an advocate or an ally and you're having a conversation trying to help somebody to empathize at a higher level and be more accepting about of people in the LGBTQ community, what role does compassion play in that conversation for you as an advocate or ally? You know, I did a, a TED talk in 2015 um, called Choosing Compassion in the Face of Diversity. And I was actually talking about my work with trans youth and, and Black trans women having really high homicide rates. Um, and when I think about compassion, it's being, it's like being willing to, to be in it with someone. And so it's not like officially or formally joining them, but it's joining folks in their humanity. And it's just creating room. Honestly, for me, compassion is just creating more room for people and their feelings. And that doesn't mean you're not, uh, you don't have boundaries. Doesn't mean that you're not direct and honest. I think one of the most compassionate kind things we can do is be clear and be honest to people with people. Um, but I don't have to necessarily make someone a bad person for beliefs that don't identify with mine, even when they're harmful. I can name the beliefs as harmful and violent in a lot of things. And I can, back to that dignity, I can still hold their dignity. And it is really unfortunate for people who choose to live in hate, who choose to be colorblind, who choose to be blind to the worthiness of other people. That is actually unfortunate. And I do have some compassion for them because what happened to your heart? What happened to your soul to, to be that way? And, and philosophy and belief systems are one thing, but when you choose to discriminate in other and harm other people and, and um, cut off their access to care and, and want to separate them, and that's, that's something bigger than a belief system. That's something deeper. And so even having compassion in that, I, like I said, compassion isn't just being soft and and passive. Peace isn't passive, right? Love is actually not soft and passive. It can be, it's one facet, but it's actually a space of, of action and, and being firm and standing back to that non-negotiable space. Like I can have compassion for you and I hope that you are able to connect with people that love you and I hope that you're safe. And I vehemently disagree with what you're saying. And, and I use all of this, this is, you know, whether I'm talking about you know, inclusion and affirmation, the LGBTQ community, doing things around racial justice and racial equity, it's the same thing. It's the same um, approach, it's the same space holding and and understanding that usually things are more uncomfortable for the other person they're gonna be for me. And so I even can have compassion for that, but it doesn't change my message and it doesn't change the purpose and the vision. This is fantastic. No, I I really appreciate this, Erin, this has been, eye-opening for me, and I hope it has been for the listeners as well. But before you go, can you remind the listeners about who you are, what you do, and how they can support the mission? Sure. Uh, Again, Erin Upchurch, pronouns are she, her. I am the executive director for Kaleidoscope Youth Center, um, Ohio's largest and longest standing organization to serve LGBTQI plus youth and young adults. 
Our website is www.kycohio.org. You can learn more about our programs. Um, the, we do education and training across the state. We have a housing program, a case management program, and our drop-in center. Um, so definitely visit us on our website. We are always looking for volunteers in different capacities. Um, we absolutely enjoy financial contributions and donations. And we'd love to invite folks to be part of our KYC Unity Circle, which is a, a sustainable donor program. No amount's too small, but it's to help provide the services and the resources that we do to our young folks. Fantastic. Everybody, there will be links in the description below. Aaron, thanks again. Really appreciate Thank you. it. This is wonderful. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.